as I'm, as I'm rambling on. This is just extra. This is not part of what was planned for today. But I remember when we were missionaries raising our support, we were invited to go to a little Southern Baptist church plant in a storefront in uh, Roanoke, Virginia. And they told us before we came, we're not going to be able to support you, but if you'd like to come and, and share your ministry, we'll pray for you and we'll give you a love offering. And, and that was great. And I had a friend in that congregation, uh, Morris Brodsky, who uh, used to come down to, to Sebring every now and again. I think he had a place down here. Morris Brodsky was 80, he was probably 82 or 83 years old when, uh, when we were there. And he went to that church. He was the one who arranged for us to be invited to go there that Sunday. And I was sitting over here because I had to get up and speak, and, and uh, Morris was sitting down there uh, in, the, in the pews, and it was a storefront thing. It was just chairs in a place that was built for, for commercial. And they had a worship band up there that was just tearing it up. I mean, they were going at it and, and doing their best and hammering at it full tilt. And I looked over at Morris Brodsky, 82, 83 years old, and he was standing up, giving it everything he had. And I thought to myself... You know, Lord, when I get to be Morris's age, that's the way I want to be. I want to be somebody who brings something to worship. I don't want to depend on whatever's put on the platform that day, but I'll pray for that and, and do everything I can to encourage that. But the question is not so much what have we put on the platform, but what have you brought to worship the Lord with? Because worship is our appropriate response to God's revelation of himself. And you can worship the Lord with any kind of music, and you can worship the Lord with any version of the Bible, and you can worship the Lord among any group of people. The question is not, what have we brought to you, but what have you brought to the Lord? Amen? Amen. That's how we worship at Bible Fellowship Church. Isaiah 40. We're going to pick up the verses that Pastor Todd read for us, Pastor, uh, verse 12. And we're going to read down to 18. It's my privilege to speak to you for the next three weeks. This is, you know, a couple of times a year, once a year, twice a year. We like to do the doctrinal statement for you to take you through the church's basic beliefs. We think it's time that we need to do that. We think that we live in an, uh, an age in the United States where we need to do that. People are not as biblically literate as they used to be. So it's a good idea to touch the bases every once in a while. So for the next three weeks, I'm going to have the privilege of touching the doctrinal bases with you about the nature of God. I'll be uh, talking to you today, and we'll be thinking together today about the fatherhood of God. Next Sunday, we'll talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the following Sunday, Lord willing, we'll talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is. And so you can put that on your calendar. And you'll know that I'm here, and you can either choose to be here or leave, whichever you're forewarned. You're forewarned what you're going to get. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are as a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. 
He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom, then, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the awesome God. That you are the God who is here and you are the God who is there. We thank you that there's never been a time, never been a time when you were not and there will never be a time when you will not be. We thank you that you are the God who holds all of nature in the palm of his hand. We thank you that you are the God who stoops down to squint into the eyes of your little children, to look us right in the face, and to say, I love you, and I care for you. Help us today, as we think about your greatness, to sense your awe. We have come hungry today. Feed us from your word. Lord Jesus, speak to us today. We've got nothing but you, but you're all we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I invite you to look at the screen. I'm going to start with some numbers today. Don't you love numbers? That's a number. That's a number. How many zeros on that? Somebody tell me real fast. How many zeros on that number? All right, there are 20, I heard. Anybody, do I hear 21? Do I hear 22? I don't know. I'm just asking. Now, what do you think that represents? Take a guess. What do you think a number that big might represent? What is it? Stars. Okay. Anybody else got a guess? Sand. Anybody else got a guess? Planets. Anybody else got a guess? You need to be more liquid in your thoughts. Seconds in a day, somebody says. Think water. Yes. You got it. This is the approximate number of gallons of water located on planet Earth. The number of gallons on planet Earth. Now, here's the deal. A gallon of water weighs 8.35 pounds. Pastor Todd did math. Pastor Todd, multiply in your head. How many pounds? No, I'm just kidding. The approximate number of gallons of water on planet Earth. Let's have our next number. Here's another number. How many zeros in this number? 24. Somebody's really good. All right. Well, you know, it's, there's in sets of three, so you count the number of sets, you multiply. I can't do that because I'm not a math person. That's a big number, isn't it? What do you think that is? Somebody got it right already. You guessed it the first time. Stars. There you go. This is the approximate number of stars that uh, the physicists believe, or the astrophysicists, whoever they are, believe that are in the, the known universe. That is a big number, isn't it? That's big. All right, what's our next number? We've got another number here. What about this? You know what that is? Anybody want to guess? It's related to, that, to the stars. It's, it's, well, it's not planets, but it's, it's, it's up there. Galaxies, there you go. 
This is the, yeah, there you go. This is the approximate number of galaxies in the known universe. And we really don't know how big the universe is. They say, well, they think it's about 91 billion light years across in diameter. 91 billion light years. That's the, that a light year is how far up light can travel in one year. 91 billion light years. That's how big we think the diameter is of the known universe. But every time we get a better telescope, we find out it's bigger than we thought. So my question to you is, how big is God? How big is God? Big. Let me tell you how big God is. It's right here in this text. Look at verse 12. God says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Do you know what he's saying? That tremendous quantity of water is like a single drop in the palm of God's hand. You ever go to the beach, you get, you, get, uh, you get a little sand in there, and you look down, there's a little drop of water? That little drop of water is like our whole world in the palm of God's hand. How big is God? How big is God? How big is God? That huge number that represented the stars, God says, that fits in the span of his hand. It says, uh, or, or the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. The span of the hand goes from the tip of your middle finger to the tip of your thumb. God says that whole vast universe with all those galaxies and all those stars, he said, it's about from here to here on me. I can take it like a softball and turn it any way I want and look at it from any angle I want. That's how big God is. This is what he says of himself. Now, you're sitting there thinking, because you're an intelligent crowd, I know you're sitting there thinking, but wait a minute. God has hands? Right? It's an anthropomorphism. It is using something physical that we know to try to give us some sense of Something that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, that we cannot in any way put our hands on or put our hands around. How do you describe something to someone who's never seen it before? If you wanted to describe a softball to uh, somebody who'd never seen one before, what would you say to them? You would say, well, uh, have you seen uh, a soccer ball? Yes, I've seen a soccer ball. Well, a softball is like that, only it's, it's smaller. You see what you have to do? You have to use something that's known in order to explain something that you've never seen before. And this is what God is doing for us here in this passage. He's saying, if you want to know how big I am, this is how big I am. This is how big I am. We're going to be looking at this business of God for the next three weeks. And it's good for us to start by knowing what the big idea is of discovering these things. So the big idea is simply this. The awesome nature of God calls us to a response of humility and contrition and obedience. The awesome nature of God calls us to a response of humility and contrition and obedience. I'm going to take you through three segments in our message today. First of all, we're going to have three preliminary questions that need to be answered before we can go on. Then I'm going to tell you and share with you four essential things that we need to know about God the Father. And finally, the moment you're all waiting for, the three takeaways that you can go get a donut from. Okay? So that's our plan. That's our scheme. 
So here we go. Let's look at the, the, uh, God the Father this morning. First of all, let's do preliminary questions. We said that uh, the Bible uses this anthropomorphism, this, this uh, using something that we know to describe something that we cannot see or touch. And uh, the, the, the question is, why does it do that? There is, of course, and you will say, well, the reason it does that, obviously, is because there's something that we, ha- we cannot really get our mind around, and it wants to give us some concept of it. But I want you to know that it's more than that that's going on when you're reading your Bible and you find these kind of things. Actually, the reason the Bible does this is so that we will get a sense of awe at who God is. Let me tell you about the first time I experienced that personally. I was a a fairly new believer. I had uh, professed uh, faith when I was a very young uh, child, but I really came to the Lord uh, in an effective way as an adult. I was about 36, 37 years old. And shortly after that, uh, my wife, who was a teacher at a Christian school, had a a Christian school conference in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And so uh, I took a week's vacation. Our our oldest son was with us, so I took care of him during the day, and we went out and did some things at night. And I wanted to do something with my boy during the day, so one of the things that that was uh, available in that area was a planetarium. I went to the planetarium. And uh, we were sitting there. You've been to a planetarium. You know, it, it, it mimics the sky. It's, they give you the figures, kind of like what we did this morning and that kind of thing. I remember sitting there in that planetarium. And, of course, as a new believer, you know how it is when you're a new believer? Everything's just welling up inside of you. And the spirit is just thunderous on the inside of you, you know. And just you're hungry for everything. And everything you see relates to God. So I'm sitting there in this planetarium. And I'm... You know, I couldn't do that now because my neck won't allow you to do that. But you've got some age on me. If you're young, go to a planetarium. If you're old, stay home. But I'm, I'm looking up at this thing, and suddenly I was struck with awe at the size of God. You know what I mean? How big is God? God is awesome. God is awesome in his bigness. I know big doesn't work. Some of you are theologians and you're sitting there saying, you can't talk about God's being big. But you have to use some word, don't you? And I I remember sitting there and just being these waves of amazement washing over me at the tremendous nature of the God who created. The tremendous nature of the God who called everything into being. These examples are so that we will sense that awe. There is a proper place for us to feel in the Christian religion. The Christian religion is not simply facts for us to grasp. There's also an awesome nature for us to be grasped by, to be seized by. And don't read these things too fast when you come to the Scripture because God wants you in these kind of examples to feel something. He wants you to feel His greatness. He wants you to feel how large He is. The awesome nature of that God. Sometimes I'll pray to the Lord. And I'll say, Lord, why would you care? Why would you care to hear me pray to you? I am a speck of dust on the surface of a grain of sand in your universe. Why would you care? God is that awesome, large, incredible, self-sufficient being who needs nothing, and yet somehow 
Somehow he stoops down to me and you like a tender father gazing into the eyes of a little two-year-old child, little three-year-old. He gets down to look at us, to look into our eyes and to say, you're not forgotten in that vast universe. I love you. I'm your daddy. That's who God is. That's how he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him that way. So the first question we deal with is, why do we use those anthropomorphisms? Second question, what do we mean by the word God? What do we mean by the word God? When we use the word God, what are we talking about? When we use the word God, we're talking about the Trinity. Did you know that you're a practitioner of the only religious system in the world that believes that God is a Trinity Now, we talked about Trinity before when we did our doctrinal studies, didn't we? I will not go back into that today and try to show you the Trinity. I will simply remind you that Christianity says that God exists in a high order called Trinity. There is one God. There's only one God. But that God... See, you you run out of words. I'm trying to pick my word here very carefully. That God has three members, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's about as close as you can come, about as close as you can come. So when we use the word God, we're talking about the Trinity. But when we say, we talk about the members of the Trinity, we talk in very specific names for them. There's God the Father, there is God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very careful never to confound those. It's always the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus never confounded those. Jesus always referred to his Father as his Father. The Son is the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit. Very important that we keep those separately because if we do not do that, we've departed from Christian doctrine. So we have to be careful about that, don't we? Today we're going to look at God the Father. Why we call him Father, what that's all about. And that's our third question. The third question is, what do we mean when we say Father? How is God the Father, our Father, and how is he Jesus' Father? Well, if you think about it for a moment, it's, a, it's another one of those things that uh, is a practical kind of thing that you can, you can get your, your hands on very easily, can't you? We know... That fathers have children. You can't be a father without a child, can you? If you're a father, you have got a child. Might be a boy, might be a girl. There are a lot of single male men in the world who are not fathers. It doesn't make them less valuable, but it doesn't make them a father. And if you are a son, you have got a Right? These names describe a relationship. They describe a certain relationship of one being to another. That's why they're important. That's why we have to keep them clear. So these names are there to define what's going on. Now, the other thing about fathers is that fathers are the originator. Right? A father originates, doesn't he? Uh, is anybody in here that uh, 
does not have a father somewhere? You got a father somewhere, don't you? There's only one guy I know of on planet Earth who was uh, the result of virgin birth, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. But even he had a father. Because the scripture tells us that Jesus was the only begotten son of the father. Meaning what? In Jesus' case, there's a way in which we cannot say that God is his origin, but there's a way in which we have to say God is his origin. Because Jesus is kind of a special case, isn't he? He's fully God, and yet he's also fully man. As God... He has no origin. He's always been. God is and always has been. But as man, he has an origin. And so when the scripture says that Jesus is the only begotten son of God, one of the things it means is that God the Father was responsible for the virgin birth and for his human birth. The other thing it means is that God the Father was responsible for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. So he's begotten in that sense that he was raised from the dead. The other way that Jesus is the only begotten is that he's the firstborn in authority. There's a time when God the Father said to God the Son, I'm giving you total authority of everything in heaven and earth. Now go out there and do it. So in that sense, Jesus says God is my Father because he's the origin of these gifts that have been given to me. But in a creative sense, he can't be the origin because they are co-equal. So those are our three questions. Why do we talk in anthropomorphisms? What do we mean by the word God? And what do we mean by the word Father? Now, having done that, let's look at four essential things you need to know about God the Father. What are the four essential things you need to know about God the Father? Look in John 4.24. John 4.24. You need to know that God is spirit. You need to know that God the Father is spirit. John 4.24 says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What do we mean when we say that God is spirit? You tell me, what's a spirit? Somebody tell me, what do we mean by spirit? You can't see him? All right, what what do we mean by spirit? What is it? A ghost, okay. Ghost is an old word, you know. If you're using certain versions of the Bible, it might say Holy Ghost instead of Holy Spirit, right? Okay. Very interesting what it means by this. If you look at the Old Testament word that's used for spirit, it's uh, ruah is, uh, is the Old Testament word. The Old Testament word that's often translated in our Bibles as spirit actually means mind. It means mind. So in other words, here's what a spirit is. A spirit is a mind without a body. A spirit is a mind without a body. You say, well, that's not possible. You can't have a mind without a body. We live in an age in an era of history where we have convinced ourselves that you cannot have a mind without a body. There you go. I got an amen down there. That'll that'll, that'll warm a preacher's heart anytime. Oh, yes, we can. You can. 
Because our age tells us that the spirit is the servant of the body. But God says that's completely backwards. That isn't the way it works. It's your body that's the servant of your spirit. Your spirit and your soul, your mind, your emotions, your intellect, your will, your spirit and all of those things inhabit your body. Your body, if you want to think about it this way, is a kind of a mechanism. It's kind of, a, it's kind of like your car. Have you noticed? Uh, you know, I can only say this for so long. Have you noticed that your car doesn't drive itself anywhere without you? Now, you know, Google is working on this thing where you're going to have self-driving cars, it begs the question of whether if, I, if I'm invited to something I don't want to go to, I can just send my car. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, you know, there are all kinds of things you could do with this. There could, we're going to have some comedy about this. So we're going to get these self-driving cars. But you think of your body as, as the vehicle. It's just the vehicle for your soul and your spirit. It's, you are a, you are a, a, a spirit. There's a spirit that inhabits your body. One of these days, when God is ready for you to to shuffle off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare would say, and for you to step into eternity, you're going to leave the body behind. But your spirit and soul is going to be completely intact. Because that's the real part of you. That's the permanent part of you. It's the temporary stuff that passes away. Well, God has no temporary stuff. When the Bible says that God is spirit, what it means is he is the eternally existing spirit. There was never a time when God did not exist. doesn't take us long to prove that, does it? There has to always have been something. There can never have been a time when there was nothing. We know this by logic, don't we? If there were ever a time when there was nothing, and I mean naked, absolutely nothing, Nothing could exist now because you cannot make something out of nothing, and something does exist. Therefore, something has always existed, right? Do this. Yeah, all right. So, so here's the deal. God is the complete fullness of everything that ought to be there. God the Father is the complete fullness of everything that ought to be there with nothing lacking, and he is that infinitely. And that's the next thing that you have to know about God. You have to know that he's infinite. Back in Isaiah 40, we get a little hint of that in verses 13 and 14. We have to know that God is infinite. What does it mean? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? We just said that God is the absolute infinite fullness of everything that ought to be there. One of the things that's an attribute of God is intelligence, right? So in other words, can we agree that God knows everything? How many of you think God knows everything? Well, you're right. Give yourself a star. You're right. God knows everything. And so Isaiah says, well, let me ask you a question about this deal. If God knows everything, you know, can anybody instruct God? Can anybody give God? uh, Is there there one thing somewhere that God's not aware of? Did you see what the angels did to Texas yesterday? Did you know God was aware of that before it happened? You know? 
there's, there's nothing that isn't already within his grasp. There's nothing that isn't already there. And that's because he's infinite. Listen, if you're infinite, it means that there's no lack of anything. If any one thing is missing, you're not infinite, right? And infinity has to be absolutely infinite because if it's not infinite, it isn't an infinity. So God has got everything on the inside of him. He's infinite. What does that mean? God the Father not only knows everything, as these verses tell us, God the Father is everywhere. Everywhere. There is no place that you can be that God is not already there. Completely and fully. Get your mind around that one. God is completely, fully present everywhere. Do you know what else it means? It means that not only is he completely infinite in his wisdom and his understanding, not only is he everywhere, but it also means that he is eternal. And that's the next thing that you have to know about God. That's in Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There was no time, there has never been a time when God was not. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, we can't even talk about God living in time. God lives outside of time. It's better to say that time lives inside of God. So God is fully present at every moment in time. Now, some of us, for a long time, have been scratching our head over this matter of God being able to declare in eternity what we decide to do in time. Do you understand that God being outside of eternity solves the problem? There's never been a time when it wasn't already real to him, and yet you still have a choice. Does that make sense? Think about that after lunch today. After you've been to Homer's. After you've eaten the roast beef, after you've had the mashed potatoes, after you've had the, the, uh, the macaroni and cheese and the green beans, go home and think about that one. And your brain is supposed to work. Well, we'll see, you know. Think about that one. Think about that one. But here's the deal. God is eternal. And then the other thing that you need to know, as a result of all of these things, as a result of the fact that God is spirit, infinitely so, as a result of the fact that God is infinite, as a result of the fact that God is eternal, there's one more thing you have to know. And what you have to know is God is unchanging. God is unchanging. Look in James 1.17. James 1.17 tells us this. You say, why are you bothering to take us to these verses? Because you need to know that the Bible answers these questions and tells us the answers and that it's not just me standing up here making stuff up. Uh, If you're a preacher, one of the things you need to know how to do is state what the thing is, place it in Scripture so that people know it's coming from the Scripture, and then explain it. That's how you do your business. That's how you do your work. And so you need to know that God says, I am unchanging, because your neighbor is going to say, no, that can't be right. And what are you going to do for an answer? You're going to say, oh, the preacher said it was right. Is that going to get you very far? That's not going to get you very far, is it? But look what God says in his word in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. 
He does not change. He does not change. He cannot change. A moment's thinking and you'll realize why he cannot change. An infinity cannot change. If you take anything away from an infinity, it's no longer an infinity, right? And if you can add anything to it, it wouldn't have been infinite. So there's no adding to God and there's no taking away from God. God is absolutely unchanging. Now, can I ask you a question? And this is for you to talk back to me about. Why is that important to us? You can trust him. Why is that important to us? Because he will always keep his promises, won't he? Has God made you any promises? Has God made you any promises? Do you know what God promised me? God promised me that his son died on the cross for me. That his blood was sufficient to satisfy the infinite, perfect wrath of God, which my sins merited. He promised me that if I would trust him, he would adopt me into his family and take me all the way home with him. You know what it means that God doesn't change? It means that you can be absolutely sure that he will always keep his promise. God will always keep his promise. This is who God is. This is who God the Father is. God the Father, this awesome personal being. Now we've come to that magic moment where we get to the last part. You've been waiting for the last part, haven't you? I can tell it. I can look at your faces and tell you've been looking for the last part. Here's the three takeaways, all right? Because you got to, listen, why come and sit here if you're not going to, if there's not something that'll change your life, right? If, if there isn't something that'll do for you. Did you know that we don't do this to be entertaining? We do this to be instructive in the hope that people's lives will be changed. So what are our takeaways? What are the three things that we can take away from this? Number one, I think we ought to strive to see the true nature of God so that we can sense the awe of his presence. I think we should strive to see the true nature of God so that we can sense the awe of his presence. You remember Isaiah in the temple? You remember when Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up? What was Isaiah's reaction? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among the people of unclean lips. Woe is me. That, that was Isaiah's reaction. And can I say to you that when you sense the awe of God, that'll be your reaction too. And it's appropriate for us. Because when we see how big God is, then we see how small we are. And God says, that's good for you. It's good for you to know how small you are. It's good for you to know that I'm greater than you are. It's good for you to know that I am your only hope. It's good for us to know that. The only way we'll ever see that is not by trying to work it up on the inside. Did you know that? You can't make yourself feel awe. The only way you'll ever, you'll ever sense that awe is when God gives it to you as a gift when you see him. I remember standing at the base of a waterfall in Argentina and watching the pure white water come down over the black rock and the green vegetation around it and the breeze coming off of it, and suddenly I was in the presence of God. It was a gift. What did I feel? I felt the awe of God because he reveals himself through nature. Romans 1 will tell you that. 
What is that? That's a gift from God. He wants you to sense his awe, to know who he is. Second thing we can take away. We need to respond in humility and contrition before the awesome holiness of God. We need to respond in humility and contrition. If we come into God's presence, if we're in the presence of God the Father, and we sense this awe, the proper response, the proper way for us to respond to that is with humility. It is to recognize that we are, as the kids would say, we ain't all that. Right? When we see who God is, when we really see who God is, and like Isaiah, we have to go to our knees, don't we? And the other thing that we, the proper response for us when we see the awesome nature of who God the Father is, is contrition. It is to, it is to, to understand that in, in the light of his perfection, we are imperfect. And we do things we shouldn't do. And we say things we shouldn't say. And we think things we shouldn't think. And the right response for us in the light of who God is is to bow before him. Is to bow before him and confess, you are all that. And I am not. And then there's one other response that we should have. And that is we should tremble at his word, fearing to disobey such an awesome and gracious being. It is appropriate for us to fear the Lord. There's a proper fear of the Lord. I heard a very interesting uh, interview. Uh, several. It's been months ago now. I don't remember how many months ago it was. But uh, Rick Warren was being interviewed by uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN. And Anderson Cooper said to him, uh, Pastor Warren, uh, you'd believe that homosexuality is a sin. Yes, I do. And he says, uh, Pastor Warren, uh, you know that history is passing you by. I'm, and I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember the exact. You have to understand I'm paraphrasing. He said, you know, history is passing you by and many other faith leaders are beginning to see that uh, the homosexual lifestyle is just an alternate lifestyle. By the way, we will always welcome everybody to our church. Everybody will always be welcome here without condemnation. But we, we do have to talk the truth, don't we? We have to speak the truth. So Anderson Cooper says to, to, uh, to Rick Warren, he says, you know, many other faith leaders are, have already moved on in this area. Can you see a time when you will pat, move on and when you will change your, your opinion on this? Rick Warren says, no, there won't be a time I'll change. And he said, why not, was the question. Rick Warren said, because I fear God more than I fear man. You see... It's, it, is, it is right for us to fear God. If God is who we've just described him to be, if he is the infinite personal being, since he is the infinite personal being who has spoken through his word, ought we not to tremble at the thought that we would displease him in any way? Shouldn't that be the greatest motivator for the change in our life? You know, we can give a lot of reasons why you ought to live a better life. If you want to live to be 100, eat broccoli. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but I'm not going to eat any broccoli. Don't tell me that I need to be good 
so that my life will go better. Don't tell me that. You haven't helped me. Don't tell me that I need to be good so that my world will be better. Don't tell me that. You haven't helped me. I may not care if my world is better. Tell me I need to be good because God is God. Right? Tell me that I need to change my life because God is worthy of a changed life. Right? We got it on the wrong foot. We think we come into this place to have our needs met. Don't you realize we come into this place to honor the one who made us? Don't you realize we live our lives for one purpose and one purpose alone? It's to honor the one who made us and is greater than we are. Don't you know this? Of course you know this. This is why we exist. We exist. To show the glory of the infinite, personal God. That's the only reason we're here. We're not here for our happiness. We're not here for the good of our family, although may God bless our family. We are here for one reason, and the one reason we're here for is to show the glory of the infinite, personal Let's pray. What can we say, Lord? (laughs) What can we say? What can we say? We're so small. You are so big. Yet you love us. You love us. You poured out the lifeblood of your son for us. so that we could shine your glory into a dark world. So that we could shout your bigness from the rooftop. Lord God Almighty, grip us with your majesty. Grip us with the bigness of your being. Show us our smallness that we may fall on our faces and worship you. If I can take a moment, some of you probably don't have any idea what we're talking about, but maybe God has moved your heart today. Maybe you've come into this church thinking it would be a nice experience today and that You know, you hear some good music and be with some pleasant people and feel righteous when you leave. Maybe God has jumped on your heart today. Maybe the Holy Spirit has cut you to the bone today. And your heart is crying out, I have got to bow. There are people down the hallway. You go straight out those back doors, go straight down that hallway... The first door you're going to come to on the left, there's a sign over it that says, what's next? You can walk in there and there are people who will love you and will love you all the way to Jesus. That will introduce you to God's Son and let you know how your sins can be forgiven. 
Maybe some of you have come in here today and you just need some help. You already know God. You, you, you already believe all of this that we've been talking about today, but your life is a mess. Your, 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 your life is on fire on the evening news. You don't know how in the world you're going to get the fire out of it. Why don't you go down that hallway and let people pray with you and let people start pointing you in a direction where you can get some help. It's not a place where you come just to get shouted at. It's a place where you come to find help. Father, hear our prayer for all who are with us today. Hear our prayer. Show us your glory that we may worship. In Jesus' name, amen.